Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition we'll feature uncomplimentary medicine and Mendel's peas. But first up, here's the news with Matt Francis. Humans are able to subliminally recognise brief, micro-expressions of emotions such as fear or happiness that last for just a fraction of a second without being consciously aware of them. This is the finding of research conducted recently at Northwestern University in Illinois. The research involved showing volunteers a micro-expression and then asking them to state the expression that another face was making, whether it be happy, sad, scared, amused or so on. Consistently, the responses given for the second face were biased based on the micro-expression previously shown, despite the volunteers not being consciously aware of the nature of the expression. Using equipment to monitor brain activity, the researchers found that the volunteer's brain responded in less than 200 milliseconds, or 0.2 of a second, from seeing the brief micro-expression. This work builds a scientific understanding of how subtle reactions and expressions in the faces of others can have a profound effect on the mood of a person. Some people seem to put you at ease, while others make you uncomfortable, yet you just can't put your finger on why. Interestingly, those volunteers involved in the study who had anxious personalities showed a greater bias effect when viewing brief expressions of surprise or alarm, and displayed much greater brainwave stimulation. Researchers hope this may give some insight into the treatment and management of anxious disorders. According to research on fetal development, it appears that the battle of the sexes takes place in a rather unexpected battleground, the placenta. The placenta is a complex organ of maternal and fetal tissues that nourishes the developing fetus in the uterus. In placental mammals, as in those which have a placenta, as opposed to marsupials who nurture their young in a pouch, or monotremes that lay eggs, Evidence in the past has indicated that genetic material coming from the father acts to speed up fetal growth, while genetic material from the mother acts to moderate the growth. At stake is the finite supply of nutrients from the mother's bloodstream. Genetically, the father's side of the growing fetus doesn't care so much about the needs of the mother or any older offspring she may be caring for, which may not have the same father. Therefore, the father's genetic material attempts to gain the maximum amount of nutrients from the mother, ensuring the fetus is strong and healthy and can carry on the father's genes. The genetic material from the mother, on the other hand, acts to moderate the rate of growth, in order that there be enough nutrients left for her to care for the rest of her young, which will all be carrying her genes, regardless of how many fathers have been involved. While this genetic arms race has been observed previously in mammals, new research has found that in live-bearing placental fish, the same process occurs. Most fish are egg-layers, with just a few species known to have placental mechanisms. The fact that the same kind of male-female genetic tensions occur in such widely different organisms as mammals and fish, which have evolved placentas independently, is a stunning example of Darwinism in action. So for all the mothers out there, don't listen to what Hallmark would have you believe. Your kids are just genetic parasites out to take your nutrients and run. 
The blockbuster movie The Matrix portrayed a future where robots used humans as energy slaves, keeping their brains happy in a fantasy land while the bioelectricity produced by their bodies keep the robots fueled up. Now two graduate students from MIT want to see a somewhat more human-friendly version of this idea put into practice. They realise that every day, countless joules of energy are generated in large crowds of people just by everyday activities, such as a crowd walking around in a train station or clubbers grooving around a dance floor. The novel technology produced to harness this otherwise wasted energy has been dubbed crowd farm. The basic idea relies on a simple principle, turning mechanical motion into electrical energy by spinning a device known as a dynamo or electrical generator. The crowd farm technology has been developed to allow the rhythmic pressure exerted by many hundreds of aimlessly ambulating bipeds into the motion of a dynamo and then into electricity. The idea isn't about to save the planet. The energy produced by almost 30,000 human steps can power an electric chain for just one second. So it's not about to replace solar or wind power as the new age alternative to conventional polluting power stations. However, the graduate students behind the technology have some quirky ideas, such as controlling the volume of music at a concert by the amount of movement in the crowd. Over 150 years ago, a quiet, unassuming monk was creating a revolution with pea plants in an abbey garden. Lachlan Watmore would like to tell you about the life and work of Gregor Johann Mendel. People try to put us to death. Just because we get around. During the 19th century, biology as a scientific discipline underwent not one but two massive revolutions. The first revolution was loud and noisy, soaked in controversy and ultimately triumph. In 1859, Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species and the upheaval it caused in biology still resonates today. The second revolution was so quiet and unimpressive that it didn't even make an impact until after its main protagonist had died. And yet it could well be argued that the second revolution was just as important to biology as the first. In 1865, Gregor Johann Mendel, an Austrian monk, published Treatises on Plant Hybrids, which, after being presented to several botanical experts who didn't understand a word of it, vanished into obscurity not to be rediscovered for 35 years. Gregor Mendel is today regarded as the father of modern genetics. These days, that sounds like a bit of a cliché. And you might ask yourself, can one person be responsible for the beginning of an entire discipline? Mendel was not the first biologist to think about inheritance, just as Darwin wasn't the first to think about evolution. However, both of them provided a sorely needed description of a mechanism to explain both processes. And it was their work that enabled genetics and evolutionary theory to become what they are today. Gregor Mendel was born Johann Mendel in 1822, the son of a farmer. His father, Anton, was a veteran of the Napoleonic Wars and had settled in northern Moravia in Austria, where Johann was born. In 1843, at the age of 21, Mendel joined an Augustinian order in the city of Bruno with the intention of becoming a teacher. He was made a novice in the order and adopted the name Gregor. His education proceeded apace. Mendel wasn't actually ordained as a priest for another four years and went through theological college in the meantime. There he studied agriculture with an emphasis on apple cultivation and winemaking. 
After his ordination as a full member of the Augustinian Order, Mendel was sent to the University of Vienna to do further study in physics and plant physiology and to get his much-anticipated teaching certificate. And he failed. His examiner wrote on his report that he lacks insight and the requisite clarity of knowledge and did not pass him. Thus, Mendel, at the age of 31, found himself washed up back at Bruno, an official failure. His whole story might have ended there, and if he'd lived in an intellectual vacuum, it would have. But nobody lives in an intellectual vacuum. And the environment of the monastery provided Mendel with the opportunity to reinvent his intellectual pursuit. To start with, the abbot of the monastery was sympathetic to Mendel's interests. This was unusual given that the local bishop had forbidden even the teaching of biology, let alone its research. Secondly, the political atmosphere of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in which Mendel lived had two layers. On the surface, the conservative ruling class of the Emperor Franz Josef and his nobility gave the appearance of a staid, obedient society. But just underneath lay a growing current of revolution fanned by both political and intellectual revolt. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels had recently published the Communist Manifesto and then there was that little old tome by that blasphemous Englishman, Charles Darwin. Europe was a hotbed of intellectual discussion, even if some of those discussions had to be conducted in whispers. So one can imagine Mendel saying to himself, well, sod the lot of you, I'm going to study plants. Given his education and upbringing, plants were the logical choice of subject. In 1854, he began to work with Pisum sativum, the garden pea plant, in a series of hybridisation experiments. At that time, very little work had been done on the mechanism of heredity for about 2,000 years. That crazy Greek Aristotle had postulated that menstrual fluid was actually female semen, quote-unquote, which, when mixed with male semen, slowly coagulated into an embryo. Later, the Dutch microscoper Anton von Leeuwenhoek discovered sperm cells, and a fellow Dutchman, Renier de Graaf, postulated the existence of the mammalian egg. However, the mechanism of inheritance was never really researched. Right up until the 17th century, medical textbooks still described the various stages of Aristotle's coagulation of the embryo. By the 19th century and the advent of microscopy, this had progressed to the idea of blended characteristics where mother and father mixed their hereditary material, like mixing two fluids. But this didn't satisfy various observations, like various traits skipping a generation. And it certainly didn't satisfy Darwin, who needed variation in a population to explain natural selection. If traits were blended, then a population would become uniform and no evolution would happen. Perhaps Mendel's greatest contribution to genetics was his realisation that whatever this mysterious hereditary mechanism was, it worked on an all-or-nothing basis, not as a blend. In other words, these units of inheritance, which would one day be called genes, were discrete from each other. In case you don't know about Mendel's experiments, I'll give you a quick, fairly simplistic rundown. He bred large numbers of pea plants in the Abbey Garden over many generations and took into account various characteristics as they changed through those generations. He would start with the hybridisation of two strains of pea plant, let's say tall and short. Short plants and tall plants were deliberately mated with each other and the resulting generation, contrary to the blended characteristics school thought, were all uniformly tall not an average of the two heights, and that first generation was called the hybrid. This first generation was then left to breed with itself. The second generation showed something very interesting indeed. On average, every fourth pea plant was short. The short characteristic, which we now call a phenotype, had apparently skipped a generation. Mendel postulated that both parents of an organism contribute to its heredity 
but that one parent's contribution tends to dominate the others. In the case of the first generation, the tall parent's tallness tends to dominate the short parent's shortness, and all the resultant offspring were tall. This shortness didn't disappear, but somehow stayed hidden until the next generation. However, it only showed itself, on average, in every fourth plant. And it was at this point that Mendel had his eureka moment. He realised that one gene was dominant over the other and that the three-to-one ratio of the second generation could be explained by the fact that only one in four plants of the second generation was receiving both recessive genes and was thus able to grow short. The other three in the average ratio were one plant with both dominant genes and two plants with one dominant and one recessive gene. And all three are tall. Only the plant with the double recessive genes will be short. Mendel expanded his experiments to look at seed form, seed colour, flower position, flower colour, pod form and colour, as well as height. As he did so, the mathematics of genetics began to take form. In 1865, he presented a seminar to the Bruno Natural History Society, and no one had the first clue what on earth he was talking about. However, his paper was published the next year in the Proceedings of the Society, and copies of the journal were circulated to libraries all over Europe. There, like a sleeping seed from one of his pea plants, Mendel's work was to stay unnoticed for the next 35 years. The last part of Mendel's life was occupied by more administrative matters. In 1868, he was elected abbot of the monastery, which robbed him of much time to do his experiments. He did manage to create a hybrid of honeybees, which made excellent honey, but was so aggressive they had to be destroyed. In 1884, Mendel died, mourned by his revolutionary friends and not by his conservative colleagues. The new abbot of the monastery, a conservative, decided that he didn't like one of his order, asking too many questions about God's natural work and burned Mendel's papers. Happily, Mendel had already been published. Then, in 1900, three different biologists rediscovered Mendel's work almost simultaneously. Hugo de Vries in Holland, Karl Korins in Germany, and Eric Chermak von Seisenig in Austria each came up with their own theories of heredity and each searched the literature for prior work on the subject, and all three rediscovered Mendel's papers. In an unselfish display of acknowledgement, they all credited Mendel with the pioneering work. That was Lachlan Watmore and the life and work of Gregor Mendel. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. The Bloodmobile, the Bloodmobile, our delivery service inside us. We begin in the heart's right ventricle and travel to the lungs. Red blood cells get oxygen to take back to the heart. Then from the left side of the heart and out to every cell Delivered by the blood mobile The food that's been digested is waiting at the dock To be taken to the tissues in the body's grocery truck So from the small intestine it's carried everywhere Delivered by the blood mobile The blood mobile, the blood mobile Delivery service inside us. The white blood cells are soldiers that fight infectious germs. They make the antibodies their weapons in the fight. The army is transported wherever they must go. Delivered by the blood mobile. 
tell a limb to grow, or speed the heart, or regulate your hunger or your sleep. The hormones are the message, they're sent from many glands, the messengers the blood mobile. Somebody's got to haul out the trash to the liver and the kidneys. It's not a pretty job. Carbon dioxide gets carried to the lungs to be exhaled. And the garbage truck is the blood mobile. The blood mobile, the blood mobile, a delivery service inside us to carry oxygen, nutrients, things that fight infection to the trash collection and deliver the mail. Bloodmobile by They Might Be Giants. In July, the Australian Federal Government gave a grant for research into complementary medicine. Should UTS offer an applied science degree in traditional Chinese medicine? Is complementary medicine a scam? Is it art? Or is it science? Complementary medicine is what you call alternative medicine when you want to be generous. You might even throw in some nonsense about different modalities as a nice way of saying that it's not scientific. If you're not feeling generous, you'd call complementary medicine medieval superstition. Before the scientific method was applied to healing in the last hundred years, medicine was a traditional art based on magical systems quite unconnected with reality. Traditional healers talked about bad humours, key energy, angry spirits, elf shot, witches and so on. Some traditional medical techniques genuinely work. Most of it works only through an expensive application of the placebo effect. Placebo is a treatment that reassures the patient that some healing will happen, but doesn't actually contribute anything itself, like a sugar pill. It works through hypnosis, the power of suggestion. When traditional herbs are put through double-blind clinical tests, a few of them are medically active. The biological activity can be observed and understood. This is where most modern drugs come from. The understanding of how the herb's active ingredients actually work can lead to new drugs with less side effects than the original herbs. Synthesising drugs also prevents the wild herb being harvested to extinction. Acupuncture has failed the double-blind clinical tests. The needles provoked the same responses whether they were inserted in acupuncturally correct places on the body, random places, or places that acupuncture predicted would be harmful. This rules out the explanation that acupuncture works for reasons of key energy, or that it accurately predicts the results of sticking needles into the body. At best, maybe needles inserted anywhere help a little. However, there have been some controversial experiments with fake needles, where the patients only thought their skin was being pierced. This also had the same small benefit, which was equal to the sugar pill placebo tests. Homeopathy practitioners say their system works by finding a herb that causes the same symptoms the patient is complaining of. They take an alcohol or water tincture of the herb and then dilute the solution thousands of times until it's unlikely any molecules of the original herb will be left in any given glass container. Finally, they hit the containers with a little hammer in a process called contussing. Homeopaths believe that the more dilute a solution is, the more powerful the herbs within it become. They also say that they're using herbs that cause the same symptoms you're suffering in a vaccine-like effort to coerce the body into fighting the symptoms. This contradicts science rather than complementing medicine. 
Scientific experiments have shown that the more you dilute a solution, the weaker it becomes, no matter how many times you hit it with a little hammer. If you dilute it thousands of times, then the chance of there being any biologically active molecules, let alone enough to do anything, is close to zero. The only exception is contamination, which means it's not really diluted, or supermolecules. There was some excitement several years ago when some vials appeared to be biologically active, even after massive dilution. It turns out that some herbs, when diluted, can form supermolecules in a few vials. These few vials were active, but none of the rest. Supermolecules are unusually large accretions of the active compounds. Science also tells us that if you have a medically active herb, then the action for the patient should be to alleviate the symptom rather than to aggravate it. Unfortunately, homeopaths also reject the germ theory of modern scientific medicine, and so advise against vaccination and antibiotics. Meditators have had their heads read by functional magnetic resonance imaging while they were meditating. Their brains appear healthier. The researchers found that even simple beginner's meditation, such as mindfulness meditation, performed for 15 minutes a few times a week was enough to show measurable benefits in helping your brain to stay healthy into old age. The phrase complementary medicine implies that the intention might be to complement scientific medicine in a supplemental sort of way. This is only true for some alternative therapies. Other alternative therapies interfere with prescription medicines. Grapefruit juice can interfere with heart medication and stop contraceptive pills from working. There are herbal supplements being sold over the counter that are still being researched for the answer to what they do and how they do it. Pre-scientific healing arts, such as traditional Chinese medicine, shouldn't be taught in an applied science degree. It's just false advertising, perhaps an arts or anthropology degree. However, there are many treatments within the art that work, and they are worthy of scientific investigation. The research will provide us with safer, more effective treatments that work more often than not. And finally, Matt, you have some news about biochips. That's right. The US Department of Defense has awarded a $1.6 billion contract to a group of universities for the development of an implantable biochip that can be stuck into an injured soldier or perhaps uh, maybe one day even a civilian that's been hurt. And the chip it goes inside you and it can read uh, the levels of certain important chemicals in your blood and tissue, such as the, the lactose and glucose and the amount of oxygen, so that a doctor can rapidly see what's wrong with you and uh, sort of rapidly diagnose the patient. That sounds pretty good. So that mean they could also tell when the soldiers are getting tired by how much lactic acid is in their blood? Yes, they are actually developing... Uh, processes that not only to put the chip in when someone's hurt but maybe just put a chip in there and leave it there and you can monitor someone's activities for for a, a longer period of time can the chip tell whether the soldier's gay oh i think that Ooh. one's a bit more secretive That's yeah. project x yeah they come up with one of them they're in a lot of trouble there yeah. maybe if the chips can tell how close together they are well it could be <laughs> sort of you know don't ask don't implant <laughs> yeah, well, apparently one of the biggest problems, they, they've got most of the technology sorted, but of course the hardest thing if you're going to just stick something in somebody is the body's natural immune system wants to wants to get rid of it. Yeah. So they've developed some sort of gel coating, or are developing some sort of gel coating that uh, mimics the uh, body's own tissue to fool the body into thinking maybe this is... Um, this thing is, it's not very very big, it's only about the size of a grain of rice. I'm not sure about how they actually get the information out, but presumably some sort of radio signal. 
Yeah, I re- read a science fiction book once about uh, futuristic armies where you get uh, spinal implants. And uh, it's not just a whole bunch of, you know, biometric data, but also at crucial points, if you get shot, it releases morphine into your system and everything. So you don't feel too much pain on the battlefield and stuff like that. Or perhaps if you uh, notice the uh, fear hormones rising, you could eject some adrenaline to get that uh, yeah, well, wavering soldier it, back exactly, in Exactly, the- yeah. Or, you know, pump him full of amphetamine if he's got to do a four-day forced march or whatever. And for civilians, I mean, if you can keep track of everything, if you've got a serious illness or you're elderly or you're in any way concerned about your health, you can have one of these chips. Basically, these chips are going to be read by military computers to Mm. identify what's going on, which means there's an input for the enemy to hack the system. Ah, so you could implant the virus chip into a a double agent sort of uh, spy and affect the enemy's system. Or kill a soldier and implant a new chip. So when they read it, it breaks their system. Uh-huh. And one uh, one final point about this, uh, there's a lot of these you know, projects, very expensive research projects by the, the US military, $1.6 for this dollars. And just to, just to put it in a bit of perspective, I think the, uh, the World Health Organization estimates that for $1.5 billion, fractionally less than this, you could eliminate childhood measles from the entire globe. Lachlan Watmore on guitar. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or mild praise, then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Subscribe to our podcast feed on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Lachlan Watmore, Matt Francis... And Diffusion has been produced, presented and panelled in the studios of 2SCR Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Everything is good for you.
Yeah.